This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Listen, we've got winter storms uh, slowing down the vaccination drive in New York, Florida, and Puerto Rico, a lot of other places. Uh, Anthony Fauci, nation's top infectious disease doctor, Tim saying inoculations have come to a grinding halt in some places. So that's a little worrisome. Yeah, it certainly is. That's why we see the numbers come down in the Bloomberg vaccine tracker. If there is bad weather, it can change not just in a state, but also the supply chain. Yeah, exactly. So watching all of that closing right now, uh, really closely, excuse me, uh, right now, cases exceeding 110 million around the world. Let's get into uh, our next guest who has spent uh, over three decades working to boost the health, safety and sustainability of our planet and the people working on it. Dr. Shelley Hearn back with us, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health Advocacy at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. She's with us once again from Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Dr. Hearn, nice to have you back with us. Um, How are you? I'm doing well, Carol. Thank you. Uh, Though, just like so many other Americans, I can't wait to get my vaccination shot. Right, right. And forgive me, my understanding is you're in D.C., not uh, in South Carolina. Yeah. How do you think it's going? It feels like over the last couple of days, we've been asking internally and our reporters have been reporting on it about, hey, is the worst over? Because it did feel like with cases and hospitalizations coming down and more vaccines getting out, it did feel like it was getting better. How do you see it? What are you hearing? Well, it absolutely is going in the right direction. You've seen the trends. We had uh, our highest peaks ever in actual COVID deaths in January, uh, over 4,000 a day. We're dropping now to 2,000, which is the right direction, but it's still much higher than the the, uh, horrific peaks that we had in the summer. So we got to continue to stay vigilant, keep keep on this. Vaccines is just one part of that equation, but it really comes down to also the mass, the social distancing, um, the, the care that we have to do and continue to keep up. Why do you think we're seeing such a dramatic drop in such a short time? Is it is it too early because the, to see the effects of the vaccine or is it because we're it, over that post-holiday bump? You know, it's speculation, and there are a number of different theories. We haven't, the science hasn't come in yet, but it's probably a small contribution on the number of people that have actually had COVID that are getting vaccinated. Uh, I think with news on the variant being out there, people have heightened again their vigilance and being careful on social distancing and wearing masks. You see more mandates. So it really comes down to a number of factors that help turn this around. Uh, and hopefully down the road, we will have that herd immunity and we'll be at a much better place. Shelley, how do you think the Biden administration is doing so far? Well, you know, as, as someone who's a professor who's you know, used to handing out grades, uh, it's, it isn't incomplete, but I've seen some very important signs uh, in terms of progress. So, you know, the good news is we uh, there was a pledge to have 100 million Americans vaccinated in 100 days, which is ambitious. Uh, but I, I did have a chance to talk to the White House vaccine coordinator today. They, even with the weather, 
appear to be on track. They're up to now about 1.7 million shots going into people's arms per day. So that's that's helping you with the math. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, we, we started before this administration came in. We had about 8 million doses a week going out to the states. We're now up to 12 million. But you know just as well as everyone who's out there who's trying to help family members or themselves find a vaccine, it's complicated out there, and it's a bit of a mess from state to state. You know what, though? I have to say, one of the con- I don't know how you, Tim, at home, but our conversations, what's confusing to me is I would assumed, even if it was a little messy with the new administration coming in and trying to figure out getting up to speed, wouldn't a couple of phone calls to, like, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and say, all right, how many have we ordered? How many <laughs> to make sure they're getting out? And a couple of calls to the states to say, let's just get it out. Um, I understand it's not as easy as that, but it does feel like it's taking a lot slower than, than maybe it should. Well, I know there are a lot of sleepless nights for a lot of people out there, and those calls have been made, and uh, the, the, the vaccine companies are stepping up, and there have been new commitments for additional doses uh, from Moderna, from uh, the soon, hopefully, coming online Johnson Johnson uh, vaccine. So th- there's more that should be coming into the supply chain, and they're talking about by July uh, 600 doses being available, which would, would cover for everybody who needs and should have a shot. But it is still slow. And mm. the thing that concerns me the most is, yes, we've got companies ramping up. Yes, the administration is trying to find as many different venues and ways to get this out there. But mm-hmm. you have every state doing their own guidelines. It's, um, it's, a, it's, it's crazy to see this patchwork taking place when we did have guidance put in place by the federal government of who should be prioritized, how to roll it out, and it seems to have been forgotten. So that's that's the kind of thing I'd like us to have, um, at, it, that uh, it's an equal opportunity versus people having to go hunting and pecking and shopping for a Ag- vaccine. Agreed, agreed. I think it makes it really confusing and complicated for, for all of us citizens. Um, Dr. Shelley Hearn, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time you find for us. Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health Advocacy at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. That patchwork, Tim, worries me. Yeah, it worries me as well. And I wonder to what extent public-private partnerships are going to be something moving forward when it comes to vaccine distribution. If we think about how we get flu shots every year, so mm-hmm. many of them happen at offices nationwide. Is that right. what it's going to look like in the future for COVID vaccine? This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We continue to watch, Tim, a lot uh, what is happening in the big freeze in Texas. We know it's becoming a global oil market crisis as well. So much output comes out of Texas. And then let's not forget there was a story, uh, our Bloomberg News team reporting that Texas is restricting the flow of natural gas across state lines. There's a lot of interesting things going on here. Yeah, unfortunately, we have Jennifer DeLowey, energy and environmental policy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone now from Washington, D.C. Jennifer, it's it's great to speak with you again. And you've been joining us on Quick Take throughout the week, and we really appreciate it. Um, Governor Greg Abbott has announced this, this order. He's, on Wednesday, he said that he was banning gas from leaving the state through February 20, 21st to ensure in-state power generators had ample supplies. Um, is, is this constitutional? Well... There's certainly a lot of questions being raised about the uh, authority that he's using here. 
Uh, and, and certainly there have been questions raised about whether this violates the Constitution's Commerce Clause, which allows uh, state governments to um, engage in interstate trade and, and prohibits them from interfering in, in interstate commerce. The uh, Interestingly, the uh, Biden administration uh, was asked about how they're viewing this, and, and they said very clearly, uh, one of their top officials said uh, just about an hour ago, said, uh, the uh, this is a state uh, issue. This is a state uh, authority here. Still, questions are being raised, and it's not quite clear to us that that uh, the gas exporters who are affected by this are inclined to follow the order. It's no longer just an order from Abbott, but in fact, uh, the Railroad Commission of Texas has now sent a notice to operators as well. You know what I love about these stories, Jen, is that it's it's a crisis, and then all of a sudden we understand, first of all, how important Texas is globally to the oil market, their own power grid, and then we, you know, start to learn about, you know, constitutional so-called, <laughs> you know, commerce clauses. I mean, these are things that in a normal day we don't even think about, right? But, you know, there's these structures in place that can make things problematic um, and make you wonder kind of how things work. Right. And Texas is, is so unique in, in, in many ways here because it is, you know, a, a bit of an island in terms of its electric grid, which is not like the rest of the, uh, of the country. It is it, ERCOT uh, is, is separate from the rest of the country's grid. And and uh, and that creates kind of a, a unique environment for um, for investment, but also for uh, the challenges that we've seen over the last few days. And, you know, in a crisis, let, let's not forget the you know, we're all looking to, you know, political leaders uh, to, to act, and, and certainly Texans who've gone without uh, uh, power uh, for days are, are looking to their leaders to act. And that may be a, a big factor in why, you know, the, the governor came out and, and took this step yesterday. Hey, Jen, I got to ask about the, the history here, because uh, as you wrote in an earlier story about this, Texas was warned a decade ago that its grid was unready for the cold. There was a storm back in 2011. Uh, we do see this storm like a black swan event is how it's being referred to a once in a century storm. Uh, but 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 Texas, but the critics say Texas knew this could happen, right? Well, that's exactly right. So it actually wasn't even just 2011. Uh, federal regulators have been warning repeatedly uh, Texas and other southern states to uh, harden their assets and, and to be better prepared for the cold. So 2011 was certainly a, a big event. It wasn't as bad as this time. Uh, temperatures uh, were a little bit higher in Texas and New Mexico during 2011. But an incident in 1989 was also uh, very destructive and caused the state's first rolling blackout. So, you know, even if it's, uh, you, you know, not on the, on the scale of, of this disaster, certainly these storms have provided a lot of uh, fodder for, for the problems here. And, and regulators have said it, it, it's a simple matter of weatherizing your assets, uh, wow. making sure that you put heating elements in instrumentation panels and that you put, you know, thermal protection and insulation around pipes and other uh, equipment. Jen, really quickly, 15 seconds. So do things change going forward as a result of this? There's going to be a lot of investigations and a lot of questions where folks are going to be asking that exact question. Uh, Governor Perry, yesterday, former Governor Perry warned that the state prefers its free market and uh, said he's uh, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't support those changes. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Fool me once, shame on you know you know how this works. All right, <laughs> Jen Deloey, thank you so much, energy environmental policy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
All right, we are also closely watching Bitcoin because, man, it seems to take out one record after another, Tim. Uh, and we just talked about Jeff Goodlock now changing his mind, seeming uh, to now consider Bitcoin a better trade. He tweeted that out. So much going on. All of this leading to our Mike Regan reporting online for Bloomberg Businessweek about the Wall Street skeptics who are hmm, sitting up and paying attention now. Mike is Bloomberg Market Senior Editor. He's with us on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Businessweek Editor Joel Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn. How the time? have changed a little bit here, it seems like, Joel. Yeah, well, that, and that was sort of uh, uh, what caught our attention is, you know, just it, it, it seems like it comes in, in waves and fits and starts and takes years, but like slowly it just seems like Bitcoin has made this kind of relentless progress and turned skeptics into believers or at least at least um, less skeptics, maybe uh, whatever that whatever that word is. <laughs> Um, and, and you know, I, we we watched it happen with with t- uh, Tesla starting to talk about it in a different way, and corporate balance sheets starting to maybe have the prospect of it. Of Miami suddenly becoming a place that might try and get bring Bitcoin onto its books, and it just kind of turned to Mike and say, like, you know, what what's happening? Is is this really happening? And wh- what's your take, Mike? Is it is this Bitcoin's moment? You know, Joel, uh, like I wrote, I think a lot of people in the sort of traditional financial industry roles had kind of hoped Bitcoin was a fad and it would go away and they wouldn't really have to worry about it. And I think this month and and maybe the last few weeks has really destroyed uh, anyone's ability to just ignore it from now on. As as you point out, uh, Tesla is storing some of its cash on its balance sheet in the form of Bitcoin. Uh, Another software company, MicroStrategy, famously doing the same. Um, Now, Tesla's in the S&P 500. MicroStrategy is actually now big enough. It's bigger than some companies in the S&P 500, uh, some of the smaller companies. So, you know, technically could be added uh, someday. So as an investor who's kind of tried to ignore Bitcoin and hope it's a fad that goes away, you really can't do that anymore because it's starting to, as you point out, get ingrained in the traditional financial system. And I think, you know, the big question is, will other companies, will other corporate treasurers and CFOs be inspired to do what uh, Elon Musk and Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy are doing and actually store some of their retained earnings, their cash in Bitcoin? Because you know, there is a common complaint that it's, your typical way of holding cash-like investments on your balance sheet is through treasury bills. They're not yielding anything. So as, as Michael Saylor puts it, it's like, it's like having a melting ice cube on your balance sheet when you look at all this asset price inflation elsewhere. And to just be holding cash that's yielding nothing is an issue for a lot of treasurers. So I think, you know, I'm not sure how many will follow their lead, Carol, but I think right. it's a discussion that's going to happen. To be fair, we've talked to Michael Saylor on air. I mean, he is all in big time on Bitcoin. So just <laughs> like put yeah. that out there. Um, yeah. Mike, why why do you think Bitcoin is so polarizing? I mean, I mean, you have people who are like so passionate about it. They say it's the future. This is going to change everything. And then you have people who refuse to acknowledge that it has any value. So I think it's because you know, if you came up studying finance, uh, in traditional finance, you always look at an investment as far as, okay, what are, what's the asset I'm buying here? Does it have a cash flow attached to it and, and therefore a yield? Uh, or if it's a currency, what's it backed by? Is it backed by a stable government with strong finances or a weak government with a huge deficit that's going to keep printing money 
you know, same thing in the bond market. What's the likelihood that this yield I'm getting is sustainable? You know, is, is the nation or the, the company going to go bust? But with Bitcoin, there's really nothing like that to analyze. I mean, is it is just a. You often hear the knock. Uh, it's called a digital tulip, kind of referring back mm-hmm. to the Dutch tulip craze of the 17th century, um, meaning it's just kind of a fad, a, a market mania that people get excited about. Um, I, I think that sentiment is, is changing fastly now uh, because of this corporate interest. The notion that the the, the number of bitcoins is limited, the supply is limited, where in currency markets. Um, you know, the money supply keeps on increasing uh, as far as U.S. dollars because of what the Fed is doing. Um, so this notion that, it, it, you know, it's sort of a, a, a way to preserve uh, capital uh, that will, has more of a chance, at least in the believer's eyes, of right. appreciating in value than depreci- depreciating. Um, it's really starting to, to click with a lot of people, and I think that's why... You know, not just Elon Musk and, and uh, at MicroStrategy, but the, you know, the tide is really turning to where people see the the value in this. Um, you know, I think you could be say wake up one day and see a big drop in the in the value of Bitcoin, and maybe that notion set, you know will will have a big setback. Um, but for now, with, when all it's doing is going up, I think it's just luring more more and more people into sort of the true believer camp of Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, Mike, I think the, the other element, and, and you alluded to this, is just the, this idea of like, you know, we call it a cryptocurrency, and that, you know, has kind of been, you know, like, for lack of a better phrase, but in many ways, it's like, it's starting to look less like a real currency than it is just a store of value in a, in a, in a stranger sense. It's, it's actually, you know, not something that we might be, you know, paying our phone bills with, or, you know, I guess you could buy your your, your next Tesla with it, uh, <laughs> uh, supposedly, but it does not seem like it's a, a transactional thing so much as something else. Um, what, what do you think of that? Just quickly, Mike. I, I think the, yeah, I don't think the appeal is still yet in the, the, its, its use as a, a, a means of transaction. I mean, you remember a few years ago when Bitcoin first uh, started getting hot. I mean, I guess it's several years ago now. Yeah. All sorts of companies you know, were saying, oh, you, you can buy our products or service. You can buy pizza with Bitcoin. You can buy pizza right. with Bitcoin. Not many people did. Um, right. I think it really is just the hope that this is an appreciation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So, Tom, uh, Tom, how did I do that? <laughs> hey, that's my dad. Oh, okay, well, that's nice. Hi, 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 Tim's dad. <laughs> uh, Tim, anything going on in Washington today? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, it's it's get it's all the rage on Twitter. It's what people are tweeting about right now. It is the hearing, of course, that we are talking about happening in Washington, the GameStop hearing. Yeah, it's been a big deal, and we've been following it, uh, and we talked about it earlier, you know, the CEO of Robinhood, CEO of Citadel, CEO of Melvin Capital, the co-founder of Reddit. I mean, it, there's a lot going on. So let's get to somebody who's been following it very closely. Larry Tab is Bloomberg Intelligence Head uh, and Director of Market Structure Research on the phone from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, Larry, good to have you here with Tim and myself. So... What's jumping out for you besides the heated exchange between the lawmakers and the witnesses? Uh, great to be here, guys. Um, yeah, it's an interesting discussion. It's really interesting to you know to hear what the lawmakers' take uh, is on this whole uh, issue. Um, that said, it's really difficult 
to get any serious points across because everybody only has a couple of minutes. So everybody's trying to push everybody to a yes or no answer uh, to questions that really deserve a lot more uh, than yes or no. That said, finally, in the last couple of minutes, uh, there have been some issues on uh, uh, payment for order flow and price improvement and and issues really, I think, that, that really mean a lot to investors. Hey, Larry, does anything come of this? You know, I, I heard a lot of the questions about payment for order flow uh, and, and, and questions about the actual execution of these trades. But but what happens on the other side of this? I mean, is there any regulatory action that's taken? Good question. Uh, uh, Rep. Waters uh, said there are going to be two more hearings, at least on this. So I'm not sure that anything's going to come directly out of this. Um, you know, there were some discussions around all different things, everything from, you know, is this manipulation, what's going on with payment for order flow, uh, people were talking about transaction taxes. Hopefully nothing, um, you know, substantial happens from this meeting because I'm not sure we really got it at, a, at the details, enough details to really get at the heart of the matter. Uh, but we'll see what happens after the next two two hearings. All right, Larry. So I've got to ask you, does anything need to happen? Like, it's interesting... Uh, I've been hearing some of the guests on Bloomberg Radio, the analysis, and is it just the big guys kind of ticked off at the little guys for figuring out how to smart to do smart trading? Yeah, I, you know, I think you know there there are some things that we should be putting in, you know, on the on the side and really looking more into, like you know, is Reg Show really, you know, uh, could it be tightened up in terms of short selling uh, transparency and disclosure? Um, is uh, market manipulation, can it really occur, you know, through bulletin boards and, you know, you know usually when we're thinking about market, uh, uh, market manipulation, it's usually by a very limited group of people. Um, but what happens when it's a bunch of little investors completely distributed? Um, and how does that, how does that work? Um, payment for order flow, I, I think, I think that, I think that stays where it is. Um, I think that gives, uh, um, brokers uh, or in- investors free commissions, and I, I think it gives uh, creates an incentive for market makers like Citadel to provide price improvement. Uh, but I think the institutions uh, would like to get access to that flow. So, so maybe we see tightening spreads on markets so that more flow can actually occur on exchange, because that's one of the key issues about why that doesn't take place on exchanges because there's a penny tick size limit. So there are some things that are kind of cropping up that may may deserve further uh, investigation. But I think, um, you know, anything directly from this, you know, I'm not sure we're going to see any direct actions. You know, Tim, you brought this up on our on our planning call about this whole idea of payment for order flow. Um, I know we've got another guest coming up uh, at the close to talk about this. What do we need to understand, though, Larry, about paying for order flow and this whole concept of best price? Because it's not always the best price. Because a Fidelity versus a Robin Hood or somebody might not be getting the best price. Well, the way that SEC uh, determines, you know, uh, thinks about best prices, it's at or better than the displayed price in the market, which is which is locked at a, at a penny minimum spread. But the problem is that, that um, a lot of stocks should be traded more efficiently than that. So, so, and that has to do with the size of the order because, you know, my or your 100 share order, um, you know, doesn't impact supply and demand, but let's just say, you know, um, large mutual funds order or large hedge funds order will that, uh, a market maker can pay a little bit more uh, for these retail flow orders because it knows that there's not a million shares behind it or half a million shares behind it. Uh, 
because any order that's placed in the traditional markets could be accessed by anybody. It could be you, me. It could also be Stevie Cohen or some big mutual fund. The House hearing on GameStop market volatility is happening right now. We are broadcasting it live on Bloomberg Quick Take right now. You can catch it at Bloomberg.com slash QT if you want to watch it. Uh, Larry, I got, I got to ask here. Um, when it comes to the questions that, that lawmakers are asking right now, does it seem like that they're asking the right questions here? Would you ask different questions? Mm, I think they're kind of hinting in the right spaces. The problem is that the five-minute time constraint doesn't allow an intelligent answer because these answers are not yes or no. It, it's, you need to understand even just the dynamics around payment for order flow. Why can you give a 100-share you know, uh, trade a better price than you can give a half-million-share trade? Um, those need a little bit of time to suss out. Um, so I think they're, they're hinting around at the right thing. Uh, that said, I'm not sure there's you know, enough time to really get at the heart of the matter. Hey, just quickly, just got about 30 seconds here. But in terms of the individual investor, the retail investor, these you know no-cost trading platforms like a Robinhood and others, that has given them a lot of access to the market. It's a good thing. Can we say that? Oh, no question. You know, uh, first of all, you know, when I started in the business, God, when they, when they carved trades on stone back in the <laughs> 80s, um, you had to pay $200 a side to get in and out of a, of, of a stock, even for 100 shares. Now you get in and out for free. Um, you know, before, back then, um, I remember getting priced worse than the, 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 the daily high or low, um, and not in a good way. You know, now you get huh. filled in a second. Uh, so... So the markets are much better and actually much better for individuals than even institutions. I just think it's an important point, especially as they move forward and thinking about any kind of regulatory oversight of especially these new trading platforms. Larry, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Larry Tab, Head of Market Structure at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, we're just about 11 minutes away from that closing bell on this Thursday. It is time for the drive to the close. And great to have back with us uh, Dan Pipitone, co-founder of Trade Zero America, joining us once again on the phone in Brooklyn. Dan, good to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Cal. So were you glued to your TV or radio or streaming (laughs) service when it came to the hearings today in Washington? I had one ear on and uh, one eye on the screen, but yeah, interesting times. Uh, it's it's real interesting to see kind of the lawmakers' take on on what happened. Uh, you know, the, I, we feel that they're constantly trying to paint the picture of you know the markets being rigged or stacked against the little guy. And optically, while that's a great story and a great headline, it's it's refreshing to hear you know some of these guys, the the, the CEO of Citadel, uh, amongst them, to really stand their ground and. and and, uh, you know, let the regulators and the lawmakers know exactly what happened that day. So, Dan, wait, 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 regu- wait, 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 wait. So what exactly happened that day? 
Uh, Robinhood had a capital call. DTC is sort of the clearing firm's clearing firm. Uh, for whatever reason, they, they, I don't know if they were unable to or, or, or against meeting it, but they wanted to make sure that the call didn't get any bigger. Uh, and that was why they, they, they restricted trading in some of those real volatile stocks. So were the lawmakers asking the right questions? Were any lawmakers asking the right questions, in your opinion? I, I think some of the guys on the Republican side did kind of get to the heart of the matter, you know, really demonstrating that, you know, the markets operated as they should. Um, you know, um, the, the hedge funds and institutions really had, had uh, you know, had uh, their play handed to them by the retail investor. And I think just that dynamic uh, and kind of turning Wall Street on its ear where the little guy winning uh, I think is one of the main drivers of kind of uh, one, you know, the uproar for all this, for all of this. But the market, the stopping of the trading, is that the market functioning as it should, or is there something that does need to still be worked out in your view? Well, and that's why they're talking about, you know, tightening up the settlement times. Okay. Because, you know, the way that the, the markets are structured right now, it did operate as designed, but to your point, the the rules and, and, and the means in which these uh, capital calls are calculated, uh, I think, need to be revised, need to be a little bit more transparent, uh, which is why the, the, uh, the folks at Citadel and Robinhood uh, and many in the industry are pushing more for uh, instant settlements of trades. Dan, there is a lot of controversy and focus. Well, I should say focus, not necessarily controversy around payment for order flow. When you joined us on Quick Take a, a few weeks ago, I, I asked you about payment for order flow because it is one of the ways that, that you guys make money, right? Yes, it is. It's so, been around for a while. It's within the, you know, it's well within the rules. Uh, but for us, I, I think that the difference uh, in terms of how we do it and may, maybe the way some others do is that for us, we're gearing and catering to the active trader. Those folks where, you know, pennies and fractions of pennies matter. Uh, so, you know, we would be called out uh, quicker than Robinhood was for shutting off GameStop if, you know, what we were doing was filling uh, our customers at the best possible displayed price. There is a lot of activity that, that occurs in between the bid and the ask. So for us and for the routing that we, that we do uh, choose and, we, and, and that we choose to select, select a route to, it's important for us that those venues understand that price improvement is really the main driver and really the main factor uh, for the trading experience for our customers. Um, okay. So there, there were a lot of questions around payment for order flow, especially a little after 1 p.m. Eastern time, um, when one lawmaker in particular was asking uh, Citadel's Griffin about, about the practice. Um, are you at all concerned that in the wake of this, the SEC might change its rules around payment for order flow and, and how that could affect your business? It's, it is a concern, but obviously if they're changing it for, you know, for me, they're changing it for everyone. So, you know, as a broker dealer and as someone who's been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years, we'll roll with those punches. What is the concern that you have? And I understand that, you know, playing with the retail investor, the individual investor, this is a benefit for you. So I just want to kind of put that out there. But what is the concern that you have that lawmakers come down somewhere on this process that will ultimately not impact the big guys, the big investors, but will the little investors? So some of the questions today were regarding around did Robinhood or brokers police the fact that these stocks, the the GMEs and the AMCs of the world, 
were being touted and pushed on social media, uh, which I think is kind of preposterous uh, where, you know, th- this, this gentleman who started this, this Wall Street Bets board and was one of the main guys behind these trades was just sharing what he was doing. So my concern is sort of the overreaction and overreach where broker dealers would, would, would now be asked to, you know, monitor social media and, and other things that are sort of outside the realm of, of what we normally do. But do we need to be concerned there's a little bit of a pump and dump? I mean, were these people really trading when it came to GameStop thinking the fundamentals of this company? And who knows, right? We don't know the future. But do we need to be a little we, bit smart and savvy here about that possibility? Well, you know, I, I'll ask the, the, the flip side of that is those people who were trading GameStop at 250 300 and 350 if 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 they had any indication of how the markets function, they would understand that they were trading into a, a momentum play uh, where the bottom can fall out at any time. It's sort of buyer beware. Um, you know, when you have when you have situations that diverge so far from, uh, you know, what we know to be reality as it relates to the company and its operations, uh, you know, those are situations that I think people are, you know, they need to be a little bit more aware of, you know, what, what they're doing and the fact that they're committing capital at risk um, there is a there is the potential to lose that. Dan, we only have like ten seconds for this, but what's worst case scenario uh, on the other side of this? You got really twenty five. I'm going to give you a little okay. More. <laughs> Thanks. Go ahead. <laughs> worst case scenario is extra regulation that doesn't get to the core of what they're trying to mitigate, uh, and just creates unnecessary and unwanted burden on the industry, uh, which could potentially have effects on liquidity and the way that the capital markets function in a you know liquid and orderly way. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Dan Pipitone, co-founder, Trade Zero America, on the phone from Brooklyn. What do you think? Carol keeping me honest with the timing. Well, you know, a little bit more. He talks pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.